Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. Welcome to the pastor's Bible class at St. Paul's Lutheran Church of De Pere, Missouri. A special welcome to those who are listening on KFUO radio. As always, as we enter into a discussion with God and his word, we begin with a word of prayer. Gracious God and Father, we give thanks to you that you've graciously brought us to the beginning of this day, a day rich with your blessing, a word set aside to hear that word and to receive the blessings of the sacrament, to be enriched and to be encouraged and to be sent out into the world on your mission. And so we pray that this day you would open our eyes, our ears, our hearts and minds to your word, that your spirit might work in us to increase our faith and our zeal for doing the work you've called us to do. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Here at St. Paul's, we are emphasizing stewardship this month, and as often happens, when the word stewardship is brought up in a congregation, there, there can be a number of groans. People think, oh no, here we go again. Here is the church begging for money, laying a guilt trip on us, talking about how, how unfaithful we've been. This past week I read three articles, all talking about uh, how the, the giving in the churches has declined, especially since the tax incentives are no longer there, because of the standardized deductions that people, or the, the specific um, Things that people used to use as, as their tax deductions are no longer there because people are taking the standardized deduction. Church offerings have declined. I think that's a terrible explanation of what's going on. I don't believe that those of us in the church give because we receive tax deductions. I think there's a, a much higher motive. And so we, we need to get rid of this concept of groaning when we talk about stewardship and look at a, a much better definition. For years, our synod has been using this. It's printed on your sheets. That stewardship is the free and joyous activity of a child of God and God's family, the church, in managing all of life and life's resources for God's purpose. Free. Joyous, child of God, God's family, managing life and life's resources for God's purposes. How can we possibly groan about something like that? In fact, I believe that we were created to be good and faithful stewards. The book of Genesis is the book of beginning. And already in chapter 1, we learn about stewardship in Genesis 1, verse 28, God created the man and the woman, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God gave man and woman responsibility to care for the things that God had created to fill the earth, subdue it, not to dominate it, not to destroy it, but to manage it, to take care of it. 
He created us for conservation. He created us to be caretakers. He created us to be stewards of all that he had made. I've always found it interesting that the book of Genesis begins with these words about God creating, God endowing mankind with this responsibility, and then you come to the end of the book of Genesis. And from chapter 37 through chapter 50, 14 chapters, more than a fourth of the book of Genesis is about this man named Joseph. And I believe that the story of Joseph is all about stewardship as well. You likely know the story. We learned it as little children. There was a, a boy named Joseph, the next to youngest in his family. He was dearly loved by his father who gave him this coat of many colors. And God also gave Joseph the ability to, in, to see, to, to dream, to have visions, and to interpret those visions. So Joseph came along with this beautiful coat and a vision that God had given him of how one day his parents and his brothers would all bow down to him. I'm the oldest of four boys. If one of my younger brothers had come to me with this idea that someday I was going to be bowing down to him, and that this was a vision from God, and if I saw my parents somehow giving him this beautiful coat that we didn't get, my interpretation of that story was always, that little snot deserved it. He had it coming. When his brother sold him into slavery, that was a good thing. But as I've grown older, I've come to see that there was a plan in all of this. That God had a much bigger plan, putting Joseph in the right place so that he could carry out his vocation, so that ultimately he would save his family, and he would save all of Egypt from drought. And so as the story continues in, in uh, chapter 39, we're told that Joseph was sold into the household of Potiphar, who was the captain of the Egyptian guard. And it says, Joseph found favor in the sight and attended him and made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge and because of him had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Joseph was chosen. Chosen by Potiphar, but he was also chosen by God. Within this responsibility, he had the freedom to manage everything in Potiphar's house, to be accountable only to Potiphar for everything. But when he was suspected of being unfaithful, he was condemned and removed from that responsibility. And so the story continued. Joseph wound up in prison. And then in, in verses 19 and 23 of, of chapter 39, it says, The keeper of the prison, 
put Joseph in charge of all the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Once again, he's given responsibility, stewardship responsibilities for managing what was going on in the prison. And God blessed what he was doing. And the jailer trusted him. Then we read about two fellow prisoners and how they each had dreams. Now the gift that God had given to Joseph in the beginning, this ability to interpret dreams, comes into play once again. And Joseph interprets the dream, and he shows the cupbearer that he's going to be restored. But he says to the baker, you're going to be hanged. Sure enough, according to the dream, God's will came true. Well, the cupbearer was restored, and for two years he forgot all about Joseph. Until Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had a dream that nobody else could interpret. And now, once again, Joseph's gift of interpretation of dreams comes into play. The cupbearer remembers Joseph and this talent, this ability, this gift that God had given to him and tells Potiphar, there's, tells Pharaoh, there is one who can interpret your dream. You remember what the dreams were. He had two dreams in one night. One was about fat cows that came out of the Nile River and were then eaten up by the skinny cows. And then he had a dream about the ears of corn camping up out of the Nile, and how, how they were also eaten up by the, the lean grain, Joseph was able to interpret it. There were going to be seven years of famine in the land. But first, there were going to be seven bountiful years. And so his advice was that they collect during those seven years so that during the lean years there would be enough to feed Egypt. Once again, Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge. He manages everything. He is number two in all of Egypt. And he carries out the plan to provide grain for Pharaoh's people and for his own family in time. You see how God was working through the gifts that he had given to Joseph to manage for God's purposes to rescue God's people, and to rescue the Egyptians from this terrible famine. It's all about stewardship. Isn't it amazing that this book that talks about the beginnings of all things spends 14 chapters talking about stewardship, the stewardship of Joseph and how he rescued God's people. Let's put stewardship into that category and talk about stewardship in that light. In, in a letter that Pastor sent to us on October 20th, he asks us to examine our life of faith with the help of Bi the Bible in three critical areas. So today we, we want to look at our stewardship in those three areas. We want to talk about 
our vocations as God's people. We want to examine the gifts that God has given to us. And indeed, God has given us gifts for his purposes. And he calls us to use them for his sake. And so we turn to the letter, and we've got the Bible verses printed out for you on the sheets that we handed out. Pastor says, first of all, examine your stewardship of worship. God blesses us with his gifts of word and sacrament. It is God who serves us divine service in worship. Worship is not about doing something for God. It is allowing God to do something wonderful for each of us frequently and on a regular basis. We also give praise and thanks to God. We encourage one another, pray for and with one another as God gathers us together. What happens when we worship? Who is doing the acting and who is receiving? Who is giving and who is being blessed? We used to call it a worship service. But in our newer hymnals, we are calling it divine service, implying that it's not us who's doing the acting, but that it is God who is doing the acting. Last Sunday, we were blessed here at St. Paul's. At every one of our services, there was a baptism. A child was brought into the kingdom. A child of God was given the gifts of the Holy Spirit. A child of God was richly blessed. A child of God became an heir of all of God's blessings, Galatians tells us. A child of God became a Christian steward in that very moment. Baptism is a gift from God. And we'll talk more about the importance of our baptism as time goes on, but, but remember, that's who God created you to be one of his dear children, and an heir of all of his blessings. Pastor refers us to Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28. And he reminds us of the words of institution and the sacrament, where God is speaking to us, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. This is my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Who's doing the giving? Who's doing the receiving when we take communion? We're the ones who are really being blessed by God. He calls our attention to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The importance of worship is, is not about us giving something, but us receiving something, the encouragement from our brothers and sisters who gather together wish it with us in those moments. He quotes Luther. As God at first gives faith through the word, so he thereafter also exercises, increases, confirms, and perfects it through the word. 
Every time we gather for worship, God exercises. God increases. God confirms. God perfects our faith through his word. So let's spend a few minutes talking about what's really going on when we gather for worship. Is it God's work or is it our work? I think we, we need to look at the different parts of the service to examine what's really going on. And one way in which we can do that is recognizing the difference between the sacramental parts of the service and the sacrificial parts of the service. The sacramental parts of the service are when God is giving to us. The sacrificial parts are when we are giving to God. And you can tell the difference by the way the pastor stands in worship. Have you ever noticed that there are times when pastor stands facing us, and there are other times when God, or where the pastor stands with his back to us, facing the same direction, looking at the altar, which is in the front? What's going on during those times? We stand, and the pastor faces the altar, and he leads us saying, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Those are the words that are spoken to us when we're baptized. But he's joining us and saying, here we are, Lord, remembering our baptism. And we're here to worship triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're here to receive your blessing. And the pastor turns and faces us. And he introduces the words of the confession. He's speaking God's word, telling us of our need to confess our sins and receive God's forgiveness. Then the pastor turns and joins us in the words of the confession. And we all say before God that we are poor, miserable sinners, that we're worthy of nothing but condemnation, what are we given to God at that moment? The only thing we can give to God is our sin. That's all we have to offer. We've already admitted in those opening words that we are poor, that we are miserable, we are sinners. We have absolutely nothing to offer to God except our sinfulness. And the pastor turns and faces us once again. And now he announces the wonderful words of absolution that in the stead and by the command of the Lord Jesus Christ, he forgives us all of our sins. Who's doing the giving in that moment? Is it us? Who's doing the acting in that moment? We got nothing. It is clearly God offering us forgiveness that Jesus earned for us on the cross. There are words of praise at that point. And the pastor joins us in offering to God words of praise which are actually God's words. These aren't just words that we've made up on our own, but they come directly from Scripture. So who's doing the giving? Well, in this sacrificial part, part we're offering praise to God, but it's God's own words. And then the pastor turns and greets us. The Lord be with you. And we respond once again, God giving. And the pastor turns and leads us in, in a short prayer. There we are offering up 
words of prayer to God. And then comes the service of the word, where it's always the pastor facing us, reading the word to us. This is God giving to his people. And then there comes the sermon, and once again, the pastor is facing us, giving us the word of God. And then we turn and speak the creed. Ever wonder why we use one of those ancient creeds at every one of our services? Here's a time when, when we're really talking to one another. Words of encouragement. I always told kids in confirmation class, when it comes time to speak the creed, don't sit with your hand in the book, with your head down, ashamed of what you're saying, but clench your fists, stand up straight. This is your confession. This is what you believe. And you say it boldly. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Suppose the person sitting next to you is having a bad week and needs to hear the encouragement, yes, we believe in God the Father. He believes it. I believe it. We all believe it. Here are words of encouragement as Hebrews talks about, encouraging one another as we see the day drawing near. There's the offering that we bring to God, but as we'll acknowledge in a little bit, it's all His anyway. We're just giving back to Him a portion of what's going on. The pastor goes around behind the back of the altar at that point and faces the congregation. He's really facing the altar, and he offers up the prayers of the congregation. Here are our needs. Here are our concerns. Here, Lord, is what we have to offer. Just the people within our church and our community and our world that need your blessing. Then comes the service of the sacrament. And the pastor is facing us once again. And he's saying, here, here is God's gifts for you. Here is the body. Here is the blood of your Lord and Savior, Jesus. And here is the forgiveness of all your sins. Come on up and receive. There are prayers and then the, the benediction. And we leave the service every time with the, with the assurance that God is blessing us, keeping us, and His face is shining upon us, and He's lifted up His countenance upon us, and He's giving us peace. In that whole time, what have you given to God? What have you done for God? The whole worship service is about God giving to his people. So we've got some questions. If we're talking about stewardship of worship, how arrogant is it to think that we're the ones who are doing the giving? How can, how can we, as, as stewards, how can we manage something that we don't receive? If we're here week after week receiving the Word of God, receiving that assurance that God is blessing us, that His face is shining upon us, that our sins are all forgiven, how can we manage that if we're not here? And so what do, you, what do we say to a person who says, I don't need to go to church in order to be a Christian? You don't get it. You don't understand. 
You can't possibly manage your life. You can't possibly manage anything else that you have if you don't understand that God is the one who is here giving all of this to you for you to be a blessing out in the world just like Joseph was. Can you really be a Christian if you don't go to worship? The answer is, I don't think so. What about the person who says, well, my kids are busy. I want my kids to be a star athlete. I want my kids to play on these traveling teams. I, it's golf on Sunday. I work six days a week. This is my only time of the week where I can get away and, and hit a golf ball or go fishing. Oh, by the way, I think I can worship God just as well in a fishing boat as I can in the nave of the church. What would God say to someone like that who's neglecting the gifts which God is offering every time we gather for worship? Or what about a person who says, I don't go to the church because the church is full of hypocrites. It's true, there are a lot of hypocrites. There are a lot of sinners in this church. In fact, every one of us is a sinner, and every one of us needs to be in worship to receive that forgiveness and uh, the blessing. Have you seen the, the meme that's going around the, the web page? People are sitting at a football stadium. Snow is that deep on top of everybody's head. It's bitter, bitter cold. And it says, what do you mean you're uncomfortable in church? People can make it to football games Sunday after Sunday to root for their favorite teams. Aren't there some hypocrites in the, the stands? Aren't there conditions that are uncomfortable? Your team doesn't always win. But we can make it to the ball game week after week after week. How can we say we can't make it to worship? It's all a matter of priorities, isn't it? What about the claim that people often make is they don't come to church because the church is always begging for money? How do we as Christians respond to that? Is that all the church does? Do you envision God as a beggar? Oh, when, when we stand up on, on Sunday mornings and the first thing we say about ourselves is that we're poor and we're miserable, and we're sinners, how can we say that the church is always begging for money? We're standing there begging from God, not him begging from us. God doesn't need anything that we have to offer. God doesn't need, and the church doesn't need, your offering. Why would we give it? Let's talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes. Pastor goes on to say, examine your stewardship of Bible study. He says, the baptismal faith given to each of us is nurtured and strengthened through hearing, reading, and studying God's word. This morning I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. You people are here. You recognize the importance of God's word in your life. Those who are tuned into the radio, 
Why would you take time out in the middle of the day to listen to a Bible study, to be into God's Word once again, because you recognize the importance? God has given something to you in this moment. What is God giving? Pastor calls our attention to 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's all inspired and is profitable. Interesting word to, to, to use when we're talking about the Bible. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is profitable for teaching. In Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Jesus gave the Great Commission. And what he basically said was, going as you go, make disciples, teach all nations. Our responsibility as Christians is to teach the word everywhere we go to make disciples of everyone. And how can we teach them without the word? If someone were to come to you and say, what do you mean you're a Christian? What is it that you believe? Why do you go to church every Sunday? Why would you give a portion of your money to support a church? How would you respond to that without using the words of Scripture? And how can you use the Scripture if you're unfamiliar with the Scripture? And so the importance of Bible study for teaching the faith, making disciples, carrying out our mission. All Scripture is profitable for reproof. Reproof means to rebuke, to expose sin. How do we know what sin is? How do we know what's right? How do we know what's wrong? When we listen to what's going on in the culture around us today, it's saying that what we would call good, they're calling evil. What we call right, the culture around us is saying is wrong. Everything seems to be turned upside down today. How do we determine what's good and right and true? Is it just left up to each person to decide for himself or herself? God is the one who determines right and wrong. God is the one who determines good and evil. God is the one who decides on what's true and what's false. And how can we ever know? How can we ever talk to anyone around us if we don't know what God is saying to us in his word? And so the word is profitable for reproof. And for correcting, correcting has to do with restoring people who fall. How can we go to a neighbor and help that neighbor get back into a right relationship? How can we help the neighbor um, understand what's going on in his life without the Word of God? We have no, no basis of, for authority. You get into a conversation these days with people and they say, well, I, I don't know, but I believe God must be like this or 
life must be like this, or I don't understand why these things are happening in my life. How can you answer? What do you say? God speaks to us in His Word. And God helps us to determine. And God helps us to bring the brother or sister back into a correct understanding of what God's will is. The Word of God is profitable for training in righteousness. The ongoing sanctification. What does it mean to be a holy person in the world today? What does it mean to live a holy life? All Scripture is profitable. They completely, thoroughly equip. They provide us with all that we need to accomplish our task as faithful stewards. We can't do good work. We can't do anything without the encouragement, the understanding of God's Word. Bible study is critical in our lives. We turn to Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is effective. God's word is powerful. God's word works. We think of rain and snow, and oh, that's really on our mind right now as we think about snow coming tomorrow, but think of the, the, the reason why God gives rain and snow. There can be no life without the rain and the snow. And so God gives the rain, it comes down from heaven, it refreshes the land so that the land can produce abundantly to feed us. It was all part of God's plan from the very beginning. Just like the rain and the snow, God has given us his word. A word that refreshes us, a word that, that helps us produce all that God expects, all that God created us to do. So what about the stewardship of the Word in our lives? As we study God's Word, it, it influences everything. God's Word makes us productive. God's Word will always be successful so that we can do the things that God has called us to do. Our lives, our vocation, our mission. Why are we here on the earth? God has put us here for a purpose. What is that purpose? Are we doing what God has called us to do? The third section, pastor asks us to examine the stewardship of our offering of time and talent and treasure. As a result of everything belonging to God, he says, and as a result of all that he has given to us, we respond by cheerfully offering him a portion of the time, talents, and treasures that he's provided. Psalm 24, verse 1, is really the very first, the foundational principle of stewardship 
with all his. The psalmist said, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, all his. And furthermore, you and I are his as well. It all belongs to God. First Chronicles 29, verse 14, a verse that we use during our capital campaign here at St. Paul's for the building of a, a new school. It's part of David's prayer as he blessed the people for the tremendous offering that they had brought forward for the building of the temple. They willingly gave. David asked, who am I and what is my people that we should be able to thus to offer willingly for all things come from you and your own have we given to you. So once again, David recognized if, if it's all his, then, then all we can possibly do is give back to God a portion of what already belongs to him. It's not ours. I think sometimes we have this, this image of grabbing a hold of stuff, and it's, it's mine, it's all mine. I'm going to keep it all for myself. I've got to provide for myself. I've got to take care of myself. And so we grab for more and more and more until we come to that realization, it's not ours, it's God. It's all God, it's all His. And instead of drawing everything into ourselves, we're set free to let everything go. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 17 through 18, Moses said, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. These are Moses' words to the people who, who were about to enter into the promised land but refused to go in. And they had spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And once again, they were about to enter into the promised land. And David, uh, Moses kept saying to them over and over again, remember the Lord your God. When you get into that land flowing with milk and honey, you might want to take credit for it all. You might want to say, my power, my strength, my ability has gotten all this for me. But he kept saying, remember Lord your God. In the midst of all of the affluence that you're enjoying, in the midst of this land flowing with milk and honey, it is God who's giving it all to you. These wonderful words come in, in uh, chapter 8 of Deuteronomy. Chapter 9 is a horrible story of how Moses then went up onto the mountain and received the tablets of stone. And as he's coming back down from the mountain, he sees this tumult going on, a celebration, dancing and music. People had made for themselves a golden bull. 
were bowing down to worship. That's the horrible story of mankind. God gives us all these gifts. And what do we do? We, we take it and we make idols for ourselves. God gives you a career, and what do you do with it? You make an idol of it so that you basically worship the career. It becomes overarching of everything in your life. When someone comes to you and says, what do you do? You say, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm, I'm a preacher. We define ourselves by our career when it's really God who has given us the career in the first place. God gives us a family. And what do we do with the family? We idolize the family. The kids are all important. And we're going to make sure that the kids get every opportunity. And so they're going to be participating in 15 sports and and two bowling leagues and whatever else is going on in their lives. And, and we're going to fawn on our kids because they become our God. Or we look at the wealth that God has given us and maintaining that wealth becomes all important. And so we focus all of our lives on maintaining our wealth, taking care of ourselves into old age, our retirement account. And we make an idol of all the wealth that God has given us. But you go on and on. Every gift that God has given us can be turned into an idol if that becomes all important to us. And it happens all the time. But there's an even more important God we look, need to look at. 2 Corinthians 5.15 and he, Christ, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do we ever live only for ourselves? Do we ever make ourselves into the idol? That it's all about serving us. Martin Luther used an expression in Latin, incurvatus in se. Basically what it means is that we are so, so wickedly turned in on ourselves, we turn away from God. We're so turned in on our needs, our wants, our desires, ourselves. Think of a, a sewer. And that's really the way we need to look at ourselves sometimes. Like a, a drain, you know, you pull the plug and the water starts swirling. Around and around it goes until it meets the center of the drain and then it falls into the pipes. That's what we human beings do all the time. Like a sewer. It all revolves around what's in the center. And what's in the center of our lives is often ourselves. We make an idol of ourselves. In corvatus in se. St. Paul writes, how can we live that way? It, how, how can we 
We make ourselves into that idol where we worship and serve only our own needs when everything that we have is a gift from God. What Paul is suggesting is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we turn things going outward. And now, if we're at the, the center of it all, it's all going out, giving back, giving to those in need, helping the poor, doing good works. It's not about us anymore, but it's all about our God and His love for us and sharing that love with the world around us. We're set free from this idolatry. That's why stewardship is called the free and the joyous activity of a child of God. And God's family, the church, managing all that God has given us for His purposes. Pastor quotes Romans 12, verses 6 through 8 a section where he's talking about living sacrifices. And that's kind of a, an odd expression that St. Paul is using here. When we think of sacrifices, it's always an animal that's been slaughtered, an animal that has been burned up on the altar as a gift to God. Sacrifices aren't living. They're dead. But Paul says, let's offer ourselves as living sacrifice, not dead, but truly living and giving. He goes on then to describe us as the church, as the body of Christ, and how all the parts of the body are given gifts, and all of those gifts need to be working together for the body to be functioning properly. If one part of the body suffers, all of the body suffers. If one part rejoices, all rejoices. You ever hit your thumb with a hammer? What happened? Is it just the thumb that hurts? Or does the whole body feel the pain? It's early this summer, I was working with my son on a landscaping project, and we were putting down blocks, and I picked up one block to hit the other to tap it into place, and instead I hit my finger. The nail fell off. It turned black and blue. My whole body has been affected. I, I have difficulty at times tying my shoe because the, the tip of the finger is numb. The whole body suffers when one small part suffers. On the other hand, when I, I see my grandson being tickled, and he's laughing, and it's not just the spot that, that's being tickled, but his whole body is bouncing up and down and the smiles on his face. His whole body is rejoicing at the good thing that's happening to him. So we are the body of Christ. And if one part of us is suffering, we're all suffering. And if one part is rejoicing, we're all rejoicing. And then he says, each of us having gifts that differ according to the grace of God given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, according to the grace that God has given us. 
It's not the law that's motivating us. It's not someone telling us this is what we have to do. It's not God making demands of us that we give back to Him a certain, certain amount, but it's always the grace of God that's motivating us. And it comes down to recognizing the gifts that God has given to each one of us. God gave Joseph the ability to interpret dreams. And he used that and Joseph's management skills to save Egypt and to save his people. What gifts has God given to you? He lists a number of them. Prophecy, for example. God doesn't give everyone the gift of prophecy. This is, this is not foretelling the future. This is proclaiming God's word. This is what we call preaching. Not everyone has been given the gift of preaching, but those who have been need to use it according to the proportion of faith. Those who are serving in proportion to their faith. Those who have the gift of teaching in their teaching. Those who are given the gift of exhortation, that's encouraging others. Have you, you noticed that in every church there are these, these people and you gotta love them because they're always going around telling people how good things are, encouraging them. I remember there years ago there was a man, I just read his obituary the man owned a hardware store in Sioux City, Iowa. And, and while he was a, an older gentleman, he positioned himself in the narthex every Sunday morning. And he would watch for the young men, particularly the young men who came into worship. And Harlan would walk up to them and put his arm around them, and he would escort them into the church. But the whole time he was talking about football or music or whatever was going on in their lives, here was an old man who was given the gift of encouragement, and he used that gift to encourage the young men to make them feel welcome as they walked into church Sunday after Sunday. I've given you the gift of encouragement. He goes on to talk about contributing and doing it generously with simplicity a gift of leadership. You need to do it with zeal, with eagerness. Now there are some people, we in the church recognize people who have this natural ability to be leaders. They can be officers within the congregation. They can lead committees. They can lead voters meetings. They have this ability and God says, I've given you this gift. Use it for the sake of the kingdom. Acts of mercy. If you're given the gift of acts of mercy, do it with cheerfulness, wholeheartedness, with graciousness. Not everybody has to fill a, a Christmas box. But if God has given you the gift of an act of mercy, if God has given you that ability to fill a box and to send it overseas, do that joyfully. And bring it back next week because they've got to be shipped overseas. God has given you gifts. And so Scripture encourages you, what is your gift? It doesn't matter how young, it doesn't matter how old, it doesn't mean what career you might have, what spiritual gifts has God given to you? Here's a list of them. Read through that list. 
What has God given to you for his purposes, for the congregation and for the sake of his kingdom? And notice that the measure of this is not the size of the gift. He says, in proportion to your faith. It's a percentage, perhaps, is a better way to look at it. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7 says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Each person should give what he or she has decided in his heart. <clears throat> Doesn't that imply some intentionality, some planning? It doesn't work if if the worship service is going on and the ushers are coming up and you reach into your billfold and whatever happens to fall out, as long as it's not bigger than a 20, um, goes into the offering plate. That's not the image of what it means to be a Christian steward. You sit down and you plan. And you think through, what is the proportion that God wants me to return to him? My wife tells a great story, and I've used it often. I didn't ask for her permission, but I'll do it anyway. Her father was a Christian steward. Her father would go to the bank every Saturday and come home with, with money. And he would sit down with the offering plate, or with the, with the offering envelopes, for not only himself and his wife, but each one of the kids. And in front of all the kids, they would watch him take the money and fill the envelopes with cash. And they all understood that Saturday was an important day to get ready for worship. He had planned what the family was going to be giving, and each person had a, a role in that, and each person had a gift that they would bring to church the next morning. Each one, St. Paul says, as he decided in his heart. It's intentional. It's planned. It's always first fruits. It's never just the leftovers, but it's always proportional. In the Old Testament, God required that his people bring a tenth, a tithe, of all that they harvested. But you know, that was only just the beginning. The tithe was the mandatory, but on top of that, there were offerings and gifts. We in the, the church today talk about a tithe as though God were commanding us to give a tithe, a tenth, but we're free from that. There's a, a model of what we know God expected of his Old Testament wonderful old sermon illustration about a, a young man starting his career went in to visit his pastor who was talking about stewardship and he said pastor will you pray with me I want to give one-tenth of everything that I give back to the Lord and so he and the pastor went into the church the man made his vow and the pastor offered the prayer thanking God for this ability to give 
a tenth of what he had. And in those days, he was making $100 a week, and so he was willingly, joyfully putting $10 into the offering plate. But God blessed this young man, and he became extremely wealthy with a large, large income. And all throughout his career, he kept giving 10% and 10% and 10%, and the amounts grew larger and larger. Until one day, the same man went into the same pastor, and he said, Pastor, you've got to release me from this vow. It's, it's too much. I can't afford to give that kind of money anymore, one-tenth of all that I'm making. The pastor said to him, I can't release you from that vow. You made that vow before God. But I'll tell you what I'll do. We'll go into the church and we'll pray that God will reduce your income once again down to the point where you can afford to give that 10%. See, once you make the decision regarding the percentage, the proportion that you're going to return to the Lord of what is already His, the rest of the decisions all become very easy, don't they? That's why we always talk about proportional given, not the amount. Look at what God has blessed you with. Is it, is it enough to say to God, you gave me 100%, I'm going to give you 2% of that back. You've given me 100%, I'm going to give 5% of that back. But I'm going to keep 95% for myself. Now what is that proportion where you feel that you are returning to the Lord a proportion of what He has entrusted you? You're free. You decide the percentage. But look at your percentage. Look at what you're returning to the Lord in terms of percentage. Make that commitment that you're going to give that percentage no matter how God blesses. Just see where that... Pastor asked that we, we look at these Bible verses in all of the Bible classes here at St. Paul's this morning. But I think it's important that, that as we do once again, we, we examine ourselves in light of Scripture regarding our worship, our Bible study, our use of time and talents and treasures, and ultimately recognize that stewardship isn't begging for money. Stewardship is teaching God's people to to live the vocation that God has given them. Why did God create you? What has God called you to do? Why has he put you in this position at this time? Is it to save Egypt? Is it to save your loved one? Is it the free and joyous activity of you as a child of God in managing all of life, all of life, and all of life's resources for God's purposes changes the whole way we talk about stewardship in the church. In the name of Jesus, amen. May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus as you go through the week. God bless.